ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. It is a fabulous day in Tampa, Florida. It is puffy white clouds and uh, albeit a little bit hot, but we expect that in July. This is Chickie Fitzgerald with the Game Changer Network, and we are going to talk about a topic that we actually have never touched on on this show, and it's about authenticity. Now, we do talk about leadership a lot, uh, but we have not focused in on authenticity. So I am really excited to introduce our guest to you today. And her name is Carissa Thacker, and we are going to be talking about her book, The Art of Authenticity, Tools to Become an Authentic Leader and Your Best Self. Who could argue with that? Carissa, good morning, or good afternoon, I guess. Yeah, good good afternoon uh, as well. Uh, just a weather check here in Delaware. It's a little hot, too. We may be as hot in uh, Delaware as you are in Tampa, Chicky. Yeah, I haven't been outside much today, but it, it's pretty <laughs> steamy already. And, uh, you know, the thing about Florida, and I love living in Florida. I grew up in the Midwest and then uh, lived in Milwaukee for a number of years. And so I had my fill of snow. And so I love the fact that the only white thing we have here is sand. <laughs> and uh, I, I just adore palm trees, although the, the place where we just moved is all deciduous trees. And, I mean, I seriously have not seen deciduous trees. Uh, our neighborhood was completely palms. Uh, and its name was Palm Bay, uh, strangely enough. So I've picked two pictures to hang. Uh, I'm actually doing the show today in my bedroom because it's the only quiet place in the house. Um, but I picked two pictures with beautiful palm trees, so I at least have them here to, to uh, look at. So, Carissa, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of a thumbnail of you? So before you became an author, what, what were you doing? So my background and expertise is in psychology, and all of my work uh, has been in the business sphere. So uh, the way I think about it is business is, is really about two things, one, uh, money, but then the other piece of it where I work is people and how people interact mm. to actually get things done. So the human dynamics in the workplace actually captured my attention totally by accident when I was a graduate school training to become what I thought of as a normal psychologist who sat <laughs> in an office and saw patients. But I had a tremendous right. opportunity uh, to work within uh, UPS, the airline, uh, when I was a graduate student and just fell absolutely in love with the notion of how people work together to get extraordinary things done, like move packages all around the world uh, right. in a predictable, consistent uh, pattern. So that's how I wound up in my career 
uh, on a personal note, um, have lived all across the country, live now in the, the northeast in Delaware, uh, but grew up in Tennessee on a tobacco farm. Yeah, I was so going to say day, that no Delaware accent. <laughs> <laughs> any day that I think I've worked hard, I remember what working hard really is, uh, which is uh, actually working on a tobacco farm. And we had cattle and all oh sorts my. of things. But it was just a tremendous way to, to grow up and then be able to experience so many different aspects of the world through travel and lived in New York for several years, which was actually a more natural fit for me than a tobacco farm. But, uh, but all those experiences really shape you and uh, help you become a person, you know, who's in the middle mm. of your life uh, with, with a vast array of experiences and great memories to draw from. Right. And so why the book? Why now? Well, I was in a continuing education program, uh, and I was turning 48. It was called the Certificate in Positive Psychology, and I had not gone to the program for a life-changing experience. As I mentioned, my background is in psychology, so you're required to do a certain amount of continuing education credits. Mm -hmm. And I also love to practice yoga. So there was this wonderful program where I could go up to Kripalu, which is in the Berkshires and beautiful, study psychology and practice yoga and get my CEUs. <laughs> so oh, wow. I, 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 go, I go to the continuing ed program with the agenda of, you know, doing some yoga, enjoying the Berkshires and getting my CEUs and wound up doing some really deep thinking about who I was at the age of 48 and what I really wanted to do looking at the next phase of my life. And the prompt that was put in front of us was, if you pass today, if you were going to die today, what would you regret not doing? And the thing that I would regret not doing that was crystal clear to me was not having written and not having written a book. Mm -hmm. So as we dove into positive psychology, I really got into the notion of becoming more authentic and how can we become more authentic over the course of our lifetime as opposed to shutting down. And I had always had this sort of vague discomfort with the term because I associated it with being unsuccessful or opting out of society, uh, this kind of thing. And I started having conversations with my clients about the word and what it meant to them and really digging into the work of great scholars who have used the word like Bill George and Warren Bennis and digging into this work and really began to ask myself, well, gee, how can I be both authentic and effective in my day-to-day -day life? And through all of that process of study and growth and talking with my clients and reframing my own life and my own work uh, grew the book, The Art of Authenticity, where I really wanted to share with people that, yes, you can be authentic and successful at the same time. It's a discipline. It's an art but it's well worth your time and effort and energy because as we move through life, the moments that we have that are meaningful and joyful uh, can become even more precious to us as they have to me because now I'm 50. Uh, so wow. Anyway, that, that's the backstory, Chicky. Well, very cool. So now you don't have anything to regret. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, I have had the drive to write since I was seven. Someone just mm. sent me uh, something that I wrote in high school, which was the history of my hometown on Facebook yesterday. But I think those parts of us that maybe become dormant as we move through life can always come back to life. There's always this possibility to continue to grow and expand who we are. And that's part of the art of authenticity. Right, right. Well, you know, it, it's so funny because we, we have a number of intersections. Um, this week, uh, my daughter just got accepted to a five-year master's program in psychology at the University of Warsaw in Poland. Wow. And wow. it's an international program, uh, and they only accept 44 students. And on Monday, she got a note saying that she was number 45 and she was on the waiting list. And I could tell she was disappointed, but, um, you know, this has really been her dream. Uh, you know, she's passionate about psychology and and uh, passionate about Poland. So, uh, you know, the opportunity to go um, – and on Wednesday, she found out she became number 44 because someone who had been accepted dropped out. But I say this because the funny thing is I, I wrote a book a year ago, and it has not yet been published. But the name of this radio show, The Game Changer, is actually the name of my new book. And the book is an allegorical novel. And it tells the story about a company and, you know, kind of some of the psychological things going on between the different char uh, characters, both on the executive team and the private equity company that comes in and funds the company. And in the book, which I wrote this particular part of it about six months ago, I already talked about a couple of the characters uh, having been at the University of Warsaw, and this fall is the 200-year anniversary. And so I was, oh. you know, writing almost prophetically about my daughter, but without writing about my daughter, um, you know, How because it's not, it's not a story about me, but there are different characters in the book that, that kind of carry that. So it's it's funny that you talk about that desire to write, because I've had that as well. And then, you know, this intersection, um, you know, with the love of psychology and how the mind works. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, my, my daughter has been looking at uh, criminal psychology. And uh, the first two people we met when we moved into our new neighborhood are former FBI agents. <laughs> oh, wow. So, uh -huh. you know, I, I, uh, I don't know if she'll end up in private practice or in corporate life. I mean, I'd love to have her follow the, the path that you have because, you know, I think so many of the problems, and I've had a consulting firm for 20 years, um, and so many of the problems I run into, while they are brought to me with a different name, are all about people. <laughs> Yeah. So let's yeah. jump well, over. Well, and I think mm -hmm. I, I also think you know the the notion of her being exposed to these different kinds of populations uh, of people and that curiosity. Mm -hmm. Because when when you were talking about the the criminal stuff, there's actually uh, a story in the book of how I did a rotation and worked in a prison for a while. And there's a section in the book that she would really get a kick out of, I bet, called Prisons, Orderly Stages, and Elephants. And it really t looks at the idea of moral development 
from the point of view of, you know, the Stanford prison study, which is, you know, a classic, and then Kohlberg's very orderly stages of moral development, and then Jonathan Haidt's idea that that really the the unconscious sort of our animal self is an elephant, and we're a rider, and so so our mm. our elephant's telling us how to do all these things, and and our rider's like barely maintaining control of this elephant, so. I think oh, that funny. all of those aspects of human behavior, they they follow certain principles. Uh, and so having a grounding in those principles and how you relate to different populations is is extraordinary. Uh, but execu- my executive clients always get a kick out of the fact that, well, you know, Carissa had great training to work with us because she worked in a prison. They love telling that story. <laughs> Carissa, can you tell us a little bit about why authenticity was the main topic of this book? You start the book with a new vision of authenticity, and I'd love to know whether it's changed. A couple of things are are relevant uh, in terms of of authenticity. The, The first thing is that it's a concept that's been around for a long time, I mean, all the way back to ancient Greek philosophy. And if we think about what's going on in the workplace, we are in the middle of a huge transition from the industrial era to the digital era. And we're really in the early phases of that, if we think about that in historical context. So the notion of the industrial era was that we were looking for efficiency and and repetition of task and the way to um, make, at least in the U.S., one could make a really nice living by pretty much doing the same thing every day. And that was safe and things are pretty predictable. Now we find ourselves in a moment where anything that can be done by road, by repetition, that is very predictable, can. It, we're moving quickly toward the, the era where that can be done by a computer or a robot. So the idea in the book is that those uniquely human qualities about creativity and self-expression and empathy and connecting with others and helping people innovate come from being yourself as opposed to just simply blending in with the crowd as you know you see the sheep on the book jacket so this idea that to be authentic may for the for the first time in recent human history actually be adaptive in many ways the scientific management of the industrial era no one really wanted to hear what the worker thought. That was part of the ethos of the industrial era. And now we're in this new era where if it can be done, step one, step two, step three, we can automate it. So how does it, mm-hmm. how does, how does it open the playing field for a more human uh, expression at workplace and also all of us to bring our creativity and our quirks and our questions and our abilities that are uniquely ours, the, the unique constellation of traits and quirks and strengths and weaknesses that, is, that comprises us to the workplace. Now, you, you jump in, though, and talk about freedom and fear in the context of this new digital era. And uh, I would love to hear about that because you don't usually hear about those two terms together, freedom and fear. 
Peter Drucker uh, talked about uh, in his later work uh, toward the beginning of the turn of the millennia about how we were entering an, an age of unprecedented freedom. I mean, take myself. Um, I can connect to my clients all over the world from my desk here in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. And so there's this incredible freedom. I can take a course from the, the some of the best professors in the world online, but yet with all that freedom, some of the established paths have gone away. And human beings by nature are conformist. And so there's this huge drive within all of us to be authentic. But at the same time, there's a huge drive within all of us to follow a well-worn path, to know what's going to happen, to have some level of predictability and sameness. So this notion that the workplace is continually changing and a job that you're doing today may be outdated in five years is incredibly fear-inducing. And this idea that you can't go to work for one company and have quote-unquote job security, I think creates a lot of fear among people. And so this idea that, yes, we have all this freedom to learn. I can pull up my iPad and have music from throughout the history of the world. So there's this incredible freedom that comes with technology, but yet we don't have well-worn paths of predictability. There's a lot of ambiguity to it. So there's also fear and they come hand in hand. And so part of entering the workforce and being effective in the workforce, I think today is really coming to an understanding of how to negotiate and deal with the ambiguity and thrive and really exploit the freedom that you have. Got it. And, and then you talk about signature contributions versus conformity. Can you help us understand what signature contributions are? And I know you begin by talking about celebrating your quirk. I love that one. <laughs> I, I was uh, thinking about a client this morning, and his signature strength is challenging the process. So he has this history of going into very different organizations, and he is actually often recruited outside of the industry that he is in, uh, from time to time because he has this wonderful signature strength of looking at the way things are and challenging the process, the how, the way things are done now in such a way that people listen to him. And some of his ideas are really wild, but he actually sees remarkable change happen when he comes in and challenges the process. So a signature contribution is something like that. A signature contribution could be creating a team environment where people actually feel close to one another, which sounds like a touchy-feely thing, but one of the things we know from research is that under times of high challenge and pressure, for example, if a business is losing money, what helps people thrive and figure out so solutions uh, include things like high quality connections that they feel connected to one another so they stay in the fight. So a signature contribution is something that you are uniquely qualified to do. Um, I often find uh, one of my signature abilities is to deliver really tough feedback without people getting defensive. 
one of my clients had me laughing two weeks ago when I gave him some really tough feedback. And he said, if that had not been delivered in a Southern accent, I don't think I could have, could have stood it. But this <laughs> idea that being who you are and bringing your gifts to the world in a way that is uniquely you is valuable as all of those examples illustrate. So blending in, and staying below the radar could very easily get you not noticed and not very successful in your career. But when you begin to look at, okay, what, what, what needs to happen in this situation and how can I, by being me, add value that really helps, helps us as a team rise or helps an individual rise, that's what I mean by a signature contribution. Got it. One of the other ones in that chapter that intrigues me is the upside of your weakness. Um, When I was in corporate life, I never realized that I was a consultant at heart, right? And I always thought I was just the misfit, right, within the company because, um, you know, I I just didn't fit in that world at all. And so my weaknesses were... Uh, very, very exposed in that that environment. Um, but once I got outside of corporate life and had my own consulting firm, you know, I just soared. And so I suspect I experienced by leaving corporate life the upside of my weaknesses. So talk to me a little bit about that. Well, there's really two two things that I think are that 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 sort of scream at me in your story. First off, is the the fit, which is explored a little bit later in the book. But I think it's incredibly important that people, particularly early on in their career, um, become aware that companies, even in the same industry sector, can have remarkably different cultures. So, take the financial sector. And you told me you're going to work for J.P. Morgan Chase or Merrill Lynch. Well, those are true, remarkably different organizations. And one could be a great fit for a person and one could not be. And then you're also talking, I think there are other levels of fit, which is corporate versus being your own consultant, which is about less free, more, you know, more freedom to structure your own world and to work 24 mm-hmm. seven. If you would like to, as a consultant, I'm, I'm of the same bent. So I think there's this notion of fit. I think the other piece that the upside of your weaknesses gets into is that if you are part of a team um, and you try to, and as consultants, it's easy to fall into this trap of thinking we need to do everything ourselves. But when you are part of a team, whether you're inside a corporation or outside of a corporation, this notion of being clear about what you're not good at and looking for partners or looking for other people on the team who have that skill is tremendously freeing. Uh, I work a lot with senior leaders, and the minute that they sort of get rid of the myth that they can do it all and are very clear, hey, I really need you guys to step up here, it frees up others to reach their potential. So I think there's a tremendous upside to knowing what your weaknesses are and not getting down on yourself for them, but but looking for other people who do bring that stuff to the table. And then you create these partnerships. And again, you have a team that's interdependent and again, capable of doing more of what I call a smart team. You know, sometimes you put people together and performance doesn't necessarily get better. It can get worse. But when you have people <laughs> who are really complementary, you see teams really work and performance increase. 
Well, you know, I think the interesting thing about fitting or not fitting in corporate life, um, for me, had more to do with how well I do with structure. And yeah. I am a rule breaker. I am an iconoclast. Um, one of my investor uh, advisors uh, calls me the special snowflake, right? Because <laughs> I, I believe I will not melt. And, uh, and you know, because of that, I don't, right? I don't melt. And and so, you know, I look at uh, the subheader of, of that chapter of the more experiments, the better. That's actually where I'm best, where, where there aren't lines that you have to draw within, right? And you can, you can say, well, what if we did it this way? And as a consultant, um, it's beautiful because you're not constrained by how things have always been done. In fact, they hire you because they want to start thinking outside of themselves, Right, so and bring that, it outside you know, thinking. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I think that that's one of, one of the things that's wrong with industry and, and corporate corporations today is, you know, we've had so many years of people staying within their industry or, or even with the same company, although that doesn't happen as much anymore, but not venturing out to other industries and bringing new thinking. So you've got this insular uh, approach, um, which I think can be cancerous to companies. Well, and I think if we project into the future and and we say, okay, workplace 2050 in terms of how business will work, I think because of the way the markets are changing and how quickly businesses have to change, my suspicion is I'll even go out there and prognosticate. I think structures will be drastically different. I don't think we'll have, you know, Zappos holacracy everywhere in mm -hmm. uh, corporations, but I don't think we will have anything like the level of structure that we have now in most larger corporations. I think there will be some hybrid and you'll see a lot of things on a continuum, you know, that are closer to, holacracy, and then you'll see some that are more structured just based on business dynamics. But I think that hide and watch because structures are emerging, evolving, and changing uh, just to keep pace with, with, with how quickly markets change. I mean, things disappear overnight. I mean, we're talking about an era of driverless cars uh, coming up. And you know, um, one of the largest real estate companies, uh, Airbnb, owns no property. So it's, it's a brave new world out there. Right, right, definitely. Now, I see some things in Chapter 3 that intrigue me. Now, this chapter is about truth, lies, and authenticity. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting because being authentic, um, you know, clearly implies that you're being truthful about who you are and truthful also about how you see situations. And as you mentioned when we were just talking about your unique ability and, and your signature contribution of being able to deliver bad news, right, um, that uh, where, where do lies fall in this whole thing or do we have to be able to point them out to be authentic? Um. That was a fun chapter to write. Um, one of my favorite movies is a movie 
uh, with Jim Carrey in it called Liar Liar. (laughs) If you've seen it, uh, Jim Carrey has a disorder, and so whatever he thinks, he says out loud. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I often say to clients who are frustrated with nobody telling them the truth, that, you know, imagine everybody's had a truth serum and it's the world of liar, liar, where everybody's going to spout out exactly what they think about everything. And the clients, you know, begin to think that through and they immediately look horrified. So the what I try to do in that chapter is bring a measure of reality to this sort of hardcore no- notion of the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The average person uh, tells uh, three white lies a day. So that's hardcore research from a psychologist uh, named Bella DePaula. And just really thinking about this from the perspective of, you know, th- this notion of telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth all the time uh, is not really practical. But how do we seek the truth? about ourselves and about situations when it really matters. You know, is the truth that those pants make you look fat or is the truth that I value my relationship with you? And so it 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 really, with that chapter, what I'm trying to do is help people have a workable definition of what it means to be a truth-seeking person uh, versus right. necessarily feeling tied to, you know, when your spouse says, well, do these make me look fat? It's not necessarily the smartest move to say, yes, they make you look huge, go change. <laughs> so, so we try to have a little bit of fun in that chapter or, as well. By the way, dear, you are fat, yeah. Um, <laughs> Even better, yeah. My everything makes you look fat because you are fat, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like maybe I ought to lay off the Snickers bars at ten o'clock at night. <laughs> so, but I think so. I, think I have to really... talk about this next. Go ahead. Go ahead. I had a little bit of a neck. I'm sorry. I just was going to say, I think we get really rigid and moralistic and idealistic about this concept of truth. And so what I try to do in that chapter is move it to, you know, we're in the workplace. We have these relationships that we value. We're human beings. How can we be really good at seeking the truth, which is a little bit more practical concept than constantly Mm -hmm. being like Jim Carrey and liar, liar. Right. So you've got to tell me about killing the dead bug view of truth. <laughs> That's um, a wonderful uh, analogy from the work of a Harvard uh, professor named Joseph Badaracco. And his whole point with that is that there's a lot of things in life and in business where the truth isn't simple and one dimensional. So the idea of a bug, there's a bug crawling around, you take your shoe and you kill the bug, there's a dead bug there or there's a live bug there, it's clean and simple. But when it comes to certain ethics and values and moral decisions, you know, let's say you're an officer in a company and you know that layoffs are coming and part of your role, you're, you're in, you hear privileged information and you have a really good friend who's lower down in the organization and you know their job is at risk. 
tell the truth, absolute nothing but the truth. Well, as an officer in the company, that's not ethical for you to be talking out of turn about the strategic plan. So it's not a dead bug view there where there's, okay, either tell the truth or not. That's really complicated because if that officer in the company breaks confidence, they're also breaking a promise that they've made as an officer in the company. And organizational life is fraught with those kinds of dilemmas that have either two bad answers or two great answers or two answers that rip you apart. Um, so that's the dead bug view of truth. And I think to function, you really at a higher level and uh, become more authentic and dwell in reality. You really do have to get rid of this notion of um, things are as simple or black and white, you know, back to the your fat thing. Um, you know, there's a whole lot going on in that interaction that's not about how the pants actually look, which is a much, you know, much lighter hearted example than the, the one I talked about where people's jobs are at risk. But those are the kinds of dilemmas that, that people face in the workplace and sorting through what's right for you and what's authentic for you is not easy, but it's time well spent. Great, great. So the next section is about the science of authenticity, but then you jump right in and you bring up a word that I would never think of in the same context as science, and that's charisma. Is there a science to charisma? Um, some people think so. Um, where that's the the way that fits into the rubric of the book is that we tend to think about people who are charismatic as necessarily being authentic. You know, we all, oh, somebody's charismatic, we read them as authentic because authenticity is actually quite charismatic. People can be drawn to people who are authentic. But the whole point of that chapter is just because someone is highly charismatic does not equal authenticity and there are certain signs to look out for because we've all been taken in by someone that we thought authentic but they didn't turn out to be who we thought they were so there is a science behind that in that um, authenticity is is more about empowering other people and there's a wonderful piece of research in there, the Howell and House research, which really gets at, you know, there are charismatic leaders that are out for the greater good, and there are charismatic leaders that are out for the greater me. And one of the ways to distinguish between the two is to look at how the teams of people that surround them interact. Are they interacting with one another and solving problems, or are they primarily centered around that charismatic leader? Um, so that one has been discussed a lot. That chapter has gotten a lot of play because I think we have all had that experience of being taken in by someone who just does not turn out to be who we thought they were. Got it. So the next chapter, you introduce a term that most of us have never heard of, and that is self-awareness, not self-awareness. Right. What's yeah, so, well, self-awareness, so what we know in psychology is that highly functional people adapt themselves to situation. 
situations. But the tools that we use a lot of times in business are more based on trait psychology and, okay, I'm an introvert or an extrovert, and that's something that's not going to change. It is what it is. You know, my self-awareness, I'm an introvert, I'm bright, I'm this, I'm that, sort of a fixed checklist. What we know about human behavior, though, is that who we, how we behave is heavily determined by the situation that we're in. The vast majority of us are able to flex and change across situations, and we bring different aspects of ourselves. So think about who you are under high stress and pressure versus who you are on the most relaxed day of your life or in your world, Chicky, who you are when you're moving versus who you are when you're all organized. <laughs> and, and, you know, so this idea that there are selves and it has absolutely nothing right. to do with Sybil, but whether we're introverted or extroverted, that's useful information. But there is also this, this question, which is how do we behave under certain circumstances and which aspects of who we are come to the front and the fore right. based on what's going on in the situation. So that's self-awareness. Well, and I I love the part of this chapter that talks about your ideal self, your current self, and all the things in between, and, and recognizing that uh, when we do form ideals, that there has to be a plan to get from where you are to where you want to be. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I use a, a model with a lot of my clients, which is three interlocking circles, which is the ideal self, you know, who you really want to be as a leader, your real self, which is how you're actually feeling today. You know, you got up on the wrong side of the bed, kids pitched a fit on the way out the door, you know, a report's over. Do you, you know, what's, how are you really today? You know, your real self, where is that? And then your ought self, which is how do you think you ought to be? And what are the differences and the overlaps between those three selves that we all have in any situation and keeping that awareness front and center of who we want to be is helpful. But also, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we don't acknowledge where we really are in that moment at the same time. So I find that model to be really helpful when people need to have concessions, you know, uh, between the what's pushing at them in the environment it's like okay my ideal self is here but this is where I really am and because of this situation I need to do something maybe the ought self isn't wrong you know maybe you need to do what you ought to do but having an awareness that all three of those selves are functioning uh, is incredibly useful we're going to fast forward a little bit uh, through the rest of this section second section of the book, and, and this section uh, talks about balance processing and collaborative decision-making, relational transparency and honest conversations, and it wraps up with talking about our internalized moral perspective and an active, unique GPS system that we're all built with. So I know it's a lot to ha have you just kind of address quickly um, those and how they all fit together. You already mentioned the prisons, orderly stages, and elephants that's talked about in that moral perspective section, but I, I don't want to rob you of the ability to share a story or two uh, from those last sections. I think that the big piece about the four components um, that I wanted to, to, the big point there is that 
developing your authenticity really requires attention to all four of those key areas. So just to touch on balance processing is the idea that you make decisions not just with a bias toward your own viewpoint, but you're able to really hear and take in the perspectives of others as you make decisions. And one of the tips there is to hire a brilliant antagonist or two. I often will ask my clients, who who on your team really pushes you and thinks about things differently from you, but they're as smart as you are and they know your industry as well as you do? And if they don't have a ready answer, I you know I twist their arm a little bit on that because it can be all too easy to set up an eco chamber of your own ideas. Um, right. And have them coming back at you. So that one is important uh, as well. And then we talked a little bit about the, the moral point of view and Bill George's work, True North, goes into great detail about that. Uh, and then we talked about the sales uh, awareness um, as well. And transparency is tricky. That That's the three words about transparency. So two things right. are true. One Things are really changing in regard to transparency, and the old rule used to be to err on the side of disclosing less. The new rule seems to be to err on the side of disclosing more, <laughs> and a lot of people right. are really struggling with that. And right. you know, you know, when you overshare, you know, some people tend to undershare. And so, the tip in the book is that some people tend to be open books by nature, other people tend to be more cautious souls by nature. And usually there's room for the cautious soul to open up more and room for the open book to have more boundaries. And transparency is tricky. You know, there is no, you know, sort of hard and fast, here's what transparency looks like. Uh, But we do see these situations, you know, the Volkswagen scandal uh, in recent years with business where a lack of transparency is costly, uh, not just in human terms, but in financial terms. Um, so I just, you know, transparency is really tricky and anyone in the workplace uh, would do well to, to to have a considered view of transparency. One of the tools that I talk with my clients a lot about is this idea of proactive transparency, which is having stories that you can tell people that help them understand who you really are at a base fundamental level. You know, I mentioned that mm-hmm. the, at the top of the call, I grew up on a tobacco farm, so I don't think this is very hard work most days. That that's that that tells you a <laughs> bit about who I am at right. a level below the surface. But, um, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to screw up transparency these days. Right. Well, the interesting thing, and, and I wrote about this in my book, which, again, is an allegorical business novel, so I'm not, uh, you know, it's not um, clinical in in the assessment of this. But the the major characters in my book, there's some natural tension between them. And it isn't until they are totally transparent with one another about their backgrounds and what they have been through that they make the connection connection because that tension and that friction comes from the assumptions people make about your level of experience. And I had a woman that I worked for in corporate life. She was the CEO. She was very, very distant. Uh, I reported directly to her for a while. We never really connected. And then later in in life, we became business partners for a while. 
Um, and then all of a sudden I found out all the things behind that, you know, she was actually painfully shy, even though she was in a CEO oh. role in her late 40s, you know, in a, a major corporation. And, and you know, I thought she was a workaholic. Her husband lived in a different city from her most of the time and, you know, saw her in her 40s and not having children. And, you know, I remember feeling critical of that. And, you know, I wasn't married with children either, but, you know, I, I somehow thought that she should have had children. Well, I found out later she had had multiple miscarriages. And, you know, who would ever know? And, no, you don't have to announce that stuff over the loudspeaker system, but there are times to be transparent. And I get criticized about my level of transparency a lot. You know, my my husband and I had to go through Chapter 7 bankruptcy uh, eight years ago because of a business failure. And even though it was a personal bankruptcy, it was all business debt. And, you know, it's not until I do start talking about that that people open up to me. And they're like, oh, man, you know, I've been through that, too. And it's like, okay, well, there's life after this, right? It's not the end of the world. And, you know, and and you can, uh, you know, get on top of it. And, again, you don't have to be announcing these things over Twitter and Facebook. But there is a time uh, for transparency, and especially, as you mentioned, emotional transparency, um, right. Well, in the few minutes we have left, and again, I don't want to cut you off, but I, I do want to make sure we touch at least a little bit um, on the master class. Do you have a hard stop at one o'clock? I didn't ask you when we started. I do. It's twelve fifty nine now. I can go about yeah. three more minutes. How does that? Sound? Okay. No worries. Well, why don't you just introduce us to the concept of the master class really quickly, and we will just whet the appetite of our listeners for going out and grabbing a copy of the book so that they can hear more about this. That sounds great. Yeah, so the book is organized. The the third basic section of the book and the, the crescendo, if you will, is called the master class. And in the master class, uh, we delve into uh, things like paradox um, and, you know, more on seeking the truth uh, versus telling the truth choice. How does choice come into play uh, in authenticity? And then virtue uh, in, in, in human dynamics and human relationships. So with the third part, it's two, twofold, really bringing it all together, but also just really delving into some things that are really tough when you really get serious about being an authentic leader. We are all paradoxes by nature, and we all deal with other people who are paradoxical. You know, we, we, we think they're one way, and maybe they're another way in another situation. So how do we skillfully sort through ourselves and others and business situations and uh, move toward authenticity at both the individual and the organizational mm-hmm. level and success. Uh, that's what the master class is about, the hard stuff. Right, right. Well, Carissa, I'm sorry we do have to cut it short today, but, uh, again, the name of the book that we've been talking about is The Art of Authenticity by Carissa Thacker. Carissa, can you just, right before we hang up, can you – tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you if they are interested in having you speak or having you come to their company to help them become more authentic leaders. 
Sure. Uh, the website is the first uh, place to go. It's just www.carissathacker.com, and that is Carissa, K-A-R-I-S-S-A, -S -S and then Thacker, T-H-A-C-K-E-R. And if you also put in the Art of Authenticity and Google all of my website and stuff, should come right up. We are Our search engine is optimized, so we welcome your listeners to come take a look. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, thank you so much, Carissa, and I hope you have a fabulous day. And for those who have been listening, thank you so much for joining The Game Changer, and we welcome you to the GameChanger.network. Take care and have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald. Oh,